0: Hi, everyone. Left to our own devices, the conference may be over, but you can still watch the recording at cybellum.com conference. Tune in to listen to FDA updates from FDA executives themselves, learn about AI in automotive from Nvidia, the AI leader, and listen to product security leaders from Philips, Honeywell, Sisa, and more. Go to cybellum.com conference and watch the recording for free. See you at the next event.
1: Hi, this is David. And this is Shlomi. And you've tuned into Left to Our Own Devices, the Product Security Podcast. Our guest today is Phil Englert, Director of Medical Device Security at HISAC. Phil is an experienced professional well versed in building and sustaining medical device cybersecurity programs in healthcare. He has held key positions at MedSec, Deloitte, and Catholic Health Initiatives. We're really excited to have him on the show today. Phil, welcome to the show.
2: Well, thank you so much, David. A real pleasure to be here, and thank you for the opportunity.
1: We're really happy to have you. So why don't we start off? How about tell us about your journey into medical device cybersecurity and how this all came about?
2: Sure, sure. So my background, I'm a, I'm a clinical engineer. I started fixing diagnostic, clinical diagnostic analyzers in the lab for Fisher scientific and instrumentation labs, maybe 30 years ago, 30 plus years ago. So. I eventually ended up at Catholic Health Initiatives at the top of their clinical engineering program. They actually called it Physical Asset Services. We did not just biomedical service. We did facilities, maintenance, physical security. In some locations, we even did uh, food services. We did a little bit of everything and had great exposures. But really, my journey into the cyber side came out of the 2012 third Ponymon benchmark study on patient privacy and data security where they had stated that you know medical devices were insecure as a matter of fact 69% of the respondents said they don't have any protections or they don't have protections on their medical device environments and then in t- february of 2013 president obama you know the executive order 13636 kind of improving the critical infrastructure brought this to the top of our enterprise's leadership, right? And they became concerned. And our CISO came and she asked the question, what do we know about medical device security, cybersecurity? And the answer was not a darn thing, right? Not uncommon back in 2013. And that really sort of launched my journey. I belonged to a large organization, 100 plus hospitals. We had almost 400,000 patient care devices. And and our group was maintaining or managing the maintenance of every one of those. And my job was really benchmarking maintenance operations, looking to drive out cost without compromising quality, without compromising availability. So I had visibility into the entire population. And we knew many of these devices were connected, but we didn't really know how, you know. And so I partnered with IT security leader, I partnered with our privacy, one of our privacy leaders, and using the NIST 853 framework. We developed a survey to assess which devices were connected, what were the controls that were available on those devices, and what was our organizational discipline around applying those controls. Right? You can you could understand it as a large organization. We kind of were were glued together from a lot of a number of smaller organizations. As a matter of fact, there were ten organizations that formed Catholic Health Initiatives in the early days. So then, you know, knowing what we had, we assessed about 2000 endpoints, you know, uh, determined what we had. And then I really worked with our IT security team. We the One of the first things we did was went through all of our IT security standards and policies and did what I called medicalized them. We had a lot of policies that said you will have antivirus. And I said, I have a lot of equipment that that's not even a possibility. So let's modify that policy to accept the fact that medical devices, many of them can't have antivirus on them or anti-malware, you know, and and we went through that. I also got involved with the FDA, a number of industry standards groups, you know, to first understand, you know, what I was getting myself into, what was cybersecurity, learn about it, right, understand what the FDA was doing about it, how they were thinking about it, and then also to help shape that. And I was very often the sole healthcare delivery organization voiced at the table for a lot of these standards groups. And eventually, you know, a couple years into this journey, we we ended up with about seven regional biomed security teams where we partnered IT security analysts with biomedical specialists, right? So we had radiology folks and we leveraged whatever the initiatives were locally. So if one region was implementing Active Directory, we would go through and figure out which device groups could take Active Directory, which ones we could get implemented. And we worked with them, you know, as opposed to that. And then as other regions said, hey, we should do that as well. We could take those learnings and extend them into the rest of the organization. But we tried to avoid forcing top-down policies on, on the groups. You know, one of the challenges with medical devices is they are so vast, so broad, so many different technologies and so many underlying technologies or architectures and infrastructure that supports them that you know, applying things ubiquitously across that device population is just not practical or possible. So you take your wins where you can. We got really good at bringing new devices into our system. Our group was aligned underneath the procurement team. So we were part of supply chain. We negotiated what we could do. We did assessments ahead of time as we were Developing or buying, considering the purchase of these devices. We worked with our clinical leaders to identify what security controls we could put in. And we started learning, you know, how to hang these things on our network as securely as we possibly could, given, you know, the limitations of the devices themselves. We then went back because I had visibility into all of those devices. I went back and Did what we called make-it-so work orders. So we said, here's our new best learning for configuration and implementation. The next time you touch these devices, whether it's a preventive maintenance or a corrective maintenance, take the extra step to apply these configuration changes. So either affirm that they're configured to the best of our knowledge or apply the changes and bring them into that standard. And so we closed the gap from the purchase side and cleaned up what we did, you know, what we had in our existing inventory.
1: Wow. So you were like really at the forefront of bringing cybersecurity into the medical device industry.
2: We were ahead of the curve in a lot of ways. We uh, did a lot of things. We had a good team. We had good support from our senior leadership at the organization. We built good collaboration within our IT group. You know, when I first got into this, our IT security director was Often in chicken little mode, I called it, right? Every time somebody said there's a new vulnerability on a medical device, you know, suddenly the sky was falling across the country. And the first thing we had to do was learn how not to panic, learn that many of these things we couldn't do a lot about because of the limitations from the manufacturers. And so we learned very, very quickly to apply our scarce resources where they were effective You know, and and not spend a lot of time wasting time, you know, trying to figure out things that that we couldn't take action on.
1: Right.
0: Wow. So you've built medical device cybersecurity programs from scratch quite a few times. What would you say are the top three lessons you learned from doing that that you can share with, with people in a similar position?
2: Sure, sure. So the first lesson really is this is a team sport, right? This is, it relies on a lot of specialties. If you look at a clinical engineering team or a a healthcare technology maintenance group, as they call it now, you have folks that take care of, you know, the surgery, the OR, you have folks that do radiology equipment, you have folks that do clinical diagnostics and physiological monitoring, and it requires specialty. This stuff is so broad. And the same thing is on the IT side, there's desktop people, there's network people, there's back work, backup teams, you know, there's architects and the specialties required. So the first thing you have to do is commit to working together as a team. The second thing is understand that you're both techies, right? They're both tech groups, but they're fundamentally different, right? IT knows that their relationship with their customers It's a one-to-many relationship, and so they know a small change can have a big impact. Clinical engineering or biomeds, it's typically one-to-one. It's one piece of equipment interfacing with one patient at a time, and so that's different. They operate more in firefight mode, right? Something breaks. Somebody calls down and says, we've got a broken piece of equipment. The guy goes up and fixes it, right? And then just gets it back in service. That's his job. IT takes a little bit more collaborative relationship and, and you have to kind of work together to find the middle ground of those two cultural approaches to make it work, right? Uh, and then also understand that because you're technology folks, you often use the same words, but you apply different meanings to them. And it was an aha moment way early in my journey here that, that I sat in a room for an hour. We negotiated a plan. We all thought we knew what we were going to do and how to, how to solve this particular problem. And we walked out of the room and we did entirely different things because we had put our own bias into the outcome of that. Thing. And So negotiating, coming up with common language and a common framework is important. And that's why that medicalization of, of our policies was important, because it gave us a chance to negotiate, understand, you know, the perspective of the other side and make sure that we could apply it, you know, with common understanding and moving forward. The other thing to understand is you can't do it all at once, right? There's so many different kinds of equipment, right? We had close to 400,000 medical devices. There were 1,200 different makes and models of connected devices alone, right? It's just staggering the diversity of the technology that you have to support. So, you know, do what's important to you, right? Work, Work from that, right? Understand what devices can hurt you the most from either a patient safety, clinical operations, the ability to deliver care, work with your clinical leadership, right and devise methods for working on that right and then as i'm leading into the third point here is start with what can hurt you the most right whenever we talk about data privacy we say identify the crown jewels of your organization from an application or a data storage thing apply that same technique to your medical device population your ct that supports your trauma center is far more important than the C T that's out in an ambulatory diagnostic center on the in the suburbs, right? If your CT and the ER goes down, your ER is now divert and you're losing 16 to 18 percent of your admits that come through the emergency department. And so it impacts the revenues. It impacts things in a in a way that that remote one may inconvenience the patient. You may have to delay or, or reschedule or send them to another location. But it doesn't impact the have a direct impact on your clinical operations per se. And you're not treating. You're more, let's say, at-risk patients that come in through the
1: emergency department. It's really interesting. I guess from what you said about collaboration, I can easily see why you're now working with IHIC and promoting the collaboration with all the de- medical device manufacturers, the suppliers, you know, the component suppliers, and of course, the, uh, the hospitals and healthcare providers. So what would you say is the main challenge when it comes to medical device cybersecurity? How do you think we should tackle it? Looking at things like, you know, building an SBOM management process when you talk about thousands, tens of thousands of devices and the different versions and and keeping track of all that and also maybe dealing with the post-market security of devices. What what would you say is like the, the main challenge that we're facing?
2: So I think the main challenge, it really comes down to transparency, right? There's an unwillingness to openly share valuable, necessary information. And it's on both sides, right? Manufacturers have IT, IP to protect, right? They, they don't want, you know, to release the secret sauce, if you will. You know, they have a revenue stream as well that they want to make sure. And these devices are purpose-built. They're very... Some of them are very technical, right, and requires a great deal of training and skill in order to maintain, and not just skill, but experience through gain through exposure to these devices. That's not always possible in the healthcare delivery environment where you've got just a few of these devices, they're fairly reliable. And so your technicians only see them periodically and they don't gain that expertise that a manufacturer's field service team may get, right? So there's, there's elements there, right? The S bomb, you know, we're beginning to figure out how to share it. Develop and deliver it. There's been a lot of work with NTIA, with CISA. You know, we're assisting with the, with the SBOM POC that Health ISAC is, you know, so working with both manufacturers and healthcare delivery organizations to bring the groups together and really learn how, if a manufacturer can deliver it, right? How can it be consumed? How can it be consumed at scale, which is another challenge, right? And then what are you fundamentally going to do with that information once you have it, right? So the components that are in devices, right, whether they be software or hardware, are just are their assets that have to be managed. And once you're aware of them, you have to have a way to manage them. So we're learning how to do that. The other element is the vulnerability disclosure, but we're using traditional IT risk assessment methods, right? And even CVSS 3.0 has an impact vector on it. But the impact may say, you know, this allows for escalation of privileges, or this allows for remote code execution. But where they they stop there, they don't really tell you within the context of the functionality of that device, what does that mean, right? If I can gain access to a device, and remote execute some code, does that mean I can turn the printer off, right? Or does that mean I can change the value settings and, and change therapy on a the device? And those are two distinctly different outcomes or impacts on the healthcare delivery, right? One, I may be like, that's okay, I can live without the printer. The other one is like, I cannot allow you know somebody to come in and change the settings on this device without my knowledge, right? because that's a patient safety issue. So transparency is really the hard thing, right? And healthcare delivery organizations on the flip side to explore this, they're very reluctant to share information. You know, the Health ISAC is is really good at at helping organizations creating that safe harbor where folks can share, you know, indicators of compromise and this is what we're seeing and they the, there's questions that go out about hey, we're we're seeing this, is anybody else seeing it? right? Things like that. So it's very, very, very good sharing. But on the medical device space, we're a little bit more reluctant. There's risk management, there's legal issues, there's communications teams that want to get involved in those conversations because of the patient safety impact factors that are, that are not well understood for the cyber side. So we're working on that. Uh, that's one of my biggest challenges is to help Healthcare organizations, you know, understand that sharing this risk makes them stronger as a unit. You know, to beat the least of us, you'll have to beat all of us. Really, is the approach that we try to take. That came out of the HSCC group, and Greg Garcia, I believe that's his quote, and I love it because it, it really talks about the community that we're trying to build and looking out for each of us.
1: Right, and I think it's. I think it's. You're right, and I think w- one of the things that we talk about a lot is. Uh, the day after, right? The day after the SBOM management or the SBOM creation is put into place. Okay, great. What do you do with this thing? You know, you have now a whole library and, and, and then the vulnerability monitoring starts and all of a sudden you have this huge list of vulnerabilities. And like you said, it doesn't always tell you what to do with them. It doesn't always tell you how to prioritize them or how to fix them. So yeah, these are definitely, I agree with you. These are a lot of the challenges that we're seeing as well.
2: Right, right. But I look for it. I think it's going to change. We're beginning to gain some inertia on there. When we ingest S-bombs, we may have to decide that we'll just pay attention to the operating system for now, at least get that going, right? Do the crawl, walk, run piece as far as consumption and scalability might be the way to go. We'll have to learn how to how to do it in a way. And tooling will have to be developed so that it can be done You know, in an efficient and effective manner. Right now, if we're very reliant on manpower. We know that the shortage of of skilled security staff just is difficult, makes it difficult for all parties to manage these things.
0: So, Phil, what do you think is the most important trend in the next one or two years when it comes to medical device cybersecurity? What should teams really prepare themselves for in the coming years?
2: So I think there's a couple things going on, uh, and I'm beginning to see it. There's the modularization of medical devices, right? And so it's great from a support perspective. And I think what we're going to begin to see is a decoupling of the medical device technology from the communication ends. And if we get there, right, then, and it's not applicable for all technologies for sure, but if we get there right? We can then, you know, be more reactive, right? We can update these devices on a shorter cycle without impacting or having to evaluate the impact on clinical functionality. I think that's the, the thing I hope for. And I'm beginning to see signs of that as we go. The other trend that we see is software as a medical device, where the technology is not dependent upon the hardware, you know, so that will provide, you know, uh, some real flexibility in supporting the infrastructure, the OS, and elements like that that I see. And the third thing I see, and this is a double-edged sword, is the utilization of ML and AI, right, to monitor, to detect anomalous behaviors. But while that will give us the ability to detect and respond in a much more effective and, and hopefully shorter time frame, it also You know, empowers the the bad actors to um, be just as flexible and just as powerful with their attacks. You know, I've got enough gray hair. I was around when things really weren't connected, you know, and and I kind of witnessed this whole thing and the plug and play era of the late 70s and 80s, you know, and 90s, right, was we were just, we can share this information and healthcare is that giving, caring, sharing kind of organization. And they never, nobody stopped to think, oh, what could somebody do to hurt us with this stuff? And so we've been playing catch up ever since, right? And then we have... The FDA, whose purpose is to regulate the safety of medical devices, right, as well as cosmetics and food and all the rest of that that they do, and, and they do a wonderful job with it, right? But on the healthcare delivery side, the motivations are to protect privacy, you know, through HHS and CMS and, and the HIPAA. And high-tech roles right, that do that. And so there's a, a misalignment of incentives regarding the technology that generates much of the information that we're looking to protect and the systems that manage this information, the EMRs and, and the LISs, the laboratory information systems or the radiology information systems, the treatment planning systems. These are typically unregulated applications and the, they coexist in the same network increasing the challenges, right? And increasing, let's say, the vulnerability footprints within our healthcare sector. And so I think we have an opportunity to really look at how those systems are built and how they're interactive and what are the controls around that. We're beginning to see, you know, protecting not just regulated devices, but all devices, whether it's IoT, IOMT, you know, OT, Or, or applications that that us as a society uh, are dependent upon
1: right interesting so i'd like to go back to a personal question okay (laughs) so looking back in your career what was the most incredible or hard to believe moment that that you had that you know you mentioned the aha moment that you had you know earlier about something more professional and say this this can be professional as well but what was that moment what was that moment that you know you you looked and said wow this is incredible you know for whatever reason
2: so so my background is I was an Air Force radio maintenance technician, right? That was my technical training was in radio, right? And when I got out of the service, I worked for a a, a surveying instrument service company, right? So I learned optical systems, precision mechanics, fluidics and and things like that. and when i when I hired on with with Fisher Scientific, boy, it must have been in eighty, 87 or 88. It was a number of years ago. And they sent me to school, right, for a week. And they taught me how to fix tissue processors and water baths and incubators. And then they handed me a catalog that was this thick and had 1,400. Items that I had to—I was now the expert and expected to maintain. And some of these were, you know, ultra-low cascading freezers that would achieve near zero Kelvin. You know, there were ultra-high-speed centrifuges that could, you know, hit fifty thousand RPMs at, at just, you know, incredible rates. And so I was expected to to maintain these. And as I started going out and working. And I saw the analyzers in the labs, and I saw all of this stuff, and it just amazed me that that people were using technology to find out wondrous things. And as I got more into the healthcare side, you know, we were using technology to do amazing things. You know, back then, cancer treatments was the physician would prescribe drug A because he had pretty good you know results with it. and now you know, and then if that didn't work, you know, and after your hair fell out and your, and your skin got pale and you were sick for six months, they were like, well, let's try drug B. You know, and now we have the ability through genomics and proteomics to understand exactly which drug your body, your body chemistry will respond to. And that's just amazing. And that's really that amazement and that wonder when I had, when I first walked, when I walked into my first lab, you know, I still have that today. When I think about, I just read last week, they're using air bubbles, you know, to destroy cancer cells in a non-invasive procedure. So they're not zapping you with ultra high energy beams anymore. They're using simple air bubbles to treat, you know, difficult cancers and, and tough tough physiological spaces so that's the wonder of it all i'm just i was amazed on day one and i'm still amazed today and i'm just so lucky so blessed really to 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 be able to play in this space and just watch the marvelous things that other people come up with and and what they can do for for us you know hopefully i won't need too much of that but one day i'm sure i will need some of it at
1: least (laughs) right (laughs) wow very interesting thank you
0: so, Phil, do you have any practical tips for product security teams in 2023? So
2: if you're not connected, if you haven't connected, your HTM, your biomed teams, and your IT teams connect them, right? You both have specialty asset management systems. You have to correlate those systems so that if IT sees some behavior in one population, they can tell you know if it's a biomed device and then get biomed engaged. You know, we had an uh, interesting story. I had IT security from uh, one region of the country called me up and they said, hey, we just discovered through a scan that there's 110 endpoints, right, that have default credentials on them, you know, and and they said, I believe one of them, we believe they might be medical devices because we don't recognize them. And I said, well, give me what information you have. And they sent over IP addresses. And in our data set, we happened to have one device that had an IP that matched. And then I looked at what those devices were and I said, oh, interesting. We have 110 medical devices that, that one of them is in that IP range. So then I knew we matched up the 110 devices. We then you know, decided, put a plan together, said what we were going to change the credentials to, how we were going to change them and how we were going to manage them going forward, put a plan together and went out and removed that, right? And so the practical tip is work together, right? Understand what you have, right? And you have to understand it from all the different asset management teams, not just the biomeds, not just the IT security teams, they both have to come together. The second point is know what hurts you the most, right? This goes back. I made this point earlier. There are certain devices that will impact patient safety. There are certain devices that will impact clinical operations, right? Know which one of those are most important to your organization, right? Know the crown jewels of your medical devices and then think about how they can fail and then have a plan for responding, right? What are you going to do? I had a CISO with one organization. He said, Phil, he said, I had a CT and it was connected to an unknown IP address and it was leaking like five gigabyte an hour out of here. And I said, well, did you turn it off? And he goes, no, I didn't want to interrupt patient care. And I'm like... (laughs) that would never interrupt patient care. There's no way a device connected to an unknown IP address is is involved with direct patient care, right? So you have to think about how these things will fail and what you're going to do so you don't have to start going through the discovery mode. You know, the time to figure out where your bucket of water is is not after the fire starts. You want to know where the fires might start and then where that bucket of water is, right? And then the third thing is there's been a tremendous development of passive monitoring tools that gives us visibility into the traffic across these devices that have little resources or the inability to have agents put on them and be monitored with traditional IT tools, right? So if you're not using one, you know, I would say, Consider investing in one, figure out what it is you need to solve for, develop the requirements and make that investment, and then monitor what's going on, right, and really understand what's normal behavior for this traffic, right, and then So that you can identify anomalous behavior and again, have that response plan so that you know that you can shut it off, sandbox it, leave it in place, whatever the appropriate pieces. And then the last point I would make is involve your clinical teams, your clinical leaders. Hospitals are much like malls with a bunch of specialty stores. So talking to the radiology director is not the same as talking to the pathologist or the clinical lab director or the director of the OR. So get these folks involved, understand what's important to them from their specialty delivery, right? And then figure out how to support and be responsive to those teams.
0: So I think that's a perfect way to end this conversation. So Phil, thank you very, very much for the time for speaking with us today. We we learned a lot uh, from both the the personal and the professional uh, insights you had. So thank you. And we hope we can do it again sometime.
2: Excellent conversation. Thank you for inviting me and and allowing me to this platform. One last thing, right? One of my New Year's resolutions is to change my uh, passwords as part of my New Year's uh, action. So early in the year. So I do that. So I would encourage you to all do that. Maybe not in your uh, hospitals, do it in your personal life, right? To just keep, make it harder for the bad actors to know that those key things about you.
1: Right. And don't leave it on a sticky pad note on your computer. No, no. Absolutely. Left to Our Own Devices is brought to you by Cybellum. To learn more, visit cybellum.com.